Thank you for tuning into this sermon from New Life Student Ministries. Our goal is to inspire, equip, and support our students and families with biblically rich and God-centered teaching. These messages are meant to be supplemental and not substitutional for our weekly gathering. We hope this sermon is a blessing to you and your spiritual walk. If you got your Bibles, turn to Judges 3. Um, turn to Judges 3. We're in week two of a series in the book of Judges. Um, and like Pastor Tim said, we're, we're shaking it up a little bit today. Uh, usually um, one person's up here proclaiming the word of God, but we wanted to switch it up a little bit, do a little bit of like a co-preach, a Q&A, just kind of work together to unpack this really fun scripture. Um, it's it's going to be a lot of fun. So it's okay if we shake it up a little bit tonight. Is that okay? All right, all right. Here's the thing, though. Here's the ground rules. We kind of did this last week, too. Since Pastor Tim is, is a little bit immobile right now, he's looking better than he did last week. Um, but since we're, we're both sitting down, here's what we need. We need a little bit of extra uh, feedback, a little bit of extra amens if we say something good. We've never done this before, so we kind of need some extra support. So if you're down to support us tonight, can you just say amen? All right, all right. Let, let's give a quick practice. Let's say that Pastor Tim says something really profound. Let's practice like a good mm. Oh, that's good, that's good. Okay, let's say something I say like pretty decent. You know, like preaching's not like necessarily my thing, but let's say I say something like decent. Let's give like a good like, oh, perfect. Okay, I think they're oh. primed and, oh. oh. <laughs> Actually, I don't know if I want to hear you that during like the message. Payment. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> All right, are you guys at Judges 3? You guys at Judges 3? All right, here we go. Buckle in, we are about to turn. I want you to go to verse 12. It's also gonna be up on the screen for you. I'm going to try and say these names correct. If I don't, who cares? All right, here we go. Judges 3, chapter 12. First, let's pray. Jesus, come and speak tonight. Let your words be profound. Let them penetrate and let them lead to transformation. Not behavior modification, but transformation. God, let your word do its thing tonight. God, I pray that our hearts and our minds would not be on myself, Pastor Tim, or anyone else here but our minds would simply be on you, Jesus. As we sang, Lord, you are in this place. And we recognize you, we worship you, and we respond to you and what you're doing. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. All right, here we go. Judges 3, starting in verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. It's a city of Palms, apparently. That's cool. All right. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud. Everyone say Ehud. The son of Gera or Jera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. We actually have two left-handed men up here on the stage Any today. lefties in the house. Where are the lefties? Let's All go. right, you are just like Ehud. <laughs> the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to King Eglon, king of Moab. And now Eglon... He was a very fat man. And when Ehud had, pre- had uh, finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. 
just like that. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. How many of y'all want a cool roof chamber? I want one with a hot tub on it. Okay, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he rose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not pull out the sword of his belly. Guys, I'm reading straight from the Bible. Like, (laughs) you're like, this is not real. No, it's real, it's real. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the door of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. We're not done yet. Let's keep going. When he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. Is anyone feeling a little bit embarrassed right now? (laughs) Thank you, ladies. Oh, and and Chase Arnold apparently too. Okay, cool. (laughs) Thanks for the honesty, bro. Safe place, safe place. All right, Ehud escaped while they delayed and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down from the hill country and he was with their leader. He was their leader, I'm sorry. And he said to them, follow after me for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of uh, the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest for 80 years. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Thanks be to God. And what? (laughs) Has anyone ever read that? Okay, maybe ask, ask it this way. Has anyone never like read or heard this story before from the Bible? No shame. This is not one I've ever heard a sermon preached on. So you're like, what do we do with this passage? Like most of the time we like read a passage and we usually like do it like this way. We read the passage and we apply it. We read the scripture, we apply it, right? Like that's typically how we approach scripture. I don't know how you do that in this scripture. Like, am I supposed to grab the sharpest object I got and find somebody who's been at McDonald's one too many times? Like, how do I apply this? <laughs> but what I love, y'all, what I love about this text, and I want us to jump into this, is texts like this give us an opportunity to reconsider how we read the Bible, how we approach it. I'm willing to bet, and I, if you guys have a notebook or anything to write with, I want you to grab, uh, grab that notebook or grab your phone, take it for notes, I want to suggest to us that this passage um, can really confront the way we read Scripture. I'd like to suggest there are five common ways that we uh, read Scripture that I would say are partly a good idea, partly a good strategy, but they're incomplete. Okay, so here are five kind of misconceptions of reading the Bible. Okay, here we go. Number one, a lot of the times we read the Bible like a textbook. Everyone write down a textbook. We, we read the Bible like a textbook where we read for information. All of my straight A people, all my perfectionists out there, this is probably you, where you're reading the Bible and you're hoping it kind of explains everything. You want to scratch the itch of every biological, literary concern or question you've ever had. But the reality is that's not the Bible's objective to just give biological, scientific answers. It's not a textbook. There's actually something more to it. So it's not a textbook. Secondly, the Bible, a lot of the times we read it like a 
cookbook. A lot of times we read it for formulas, okay? We read it for formulas. Write that down. We read it for formulas. You see this a lot with, with kind of supernatural stuff, maybe like healing, for example, where we say, okay, okay, if I'm reading in the Bible about like the woman with the issue of bleeding and she reaches out and touches Jesus and, and she's healed, right? And we start looking for formulas. Oh, okay, so if I'm like, if I have X amount of faith, I'll get Y results, right? Has anyone ever done that before in scripture where you kind of read and it's like, okay, if I, if I believe this, if I do this, I'll get this result. The reality is that doesn't always work. If you followed God for any amount of time, you'll see that God is faithful, but God is not formulaic. God is faithful, but he's not formulaic. So we can't read the Bible like a textbook. We can't read it like a cookbook. A lot of us like to read the Bible as a coffee table book. Here's what I mean by that, where we read for inspiration, okay? Pastor Tim, uh, you've seen these people a lot. These are the people who are posting like the one verse on their Instagram next to the cup of coffee, and uh, these are usually where my artists, my worship leaders, my feelers. Your Enneagram fours. Yep, exactly. This is typically where you find us. It's like we read Philippians 4, 13. Oh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So that means I can ask this girl out to prom and she's going to say yes because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Once again, Again, that doesn't work. And uh, next time you guys go through the book of Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy, tell me like your inspirational quote from there. Like, just, just let me know. I've yet to see an inspirational quote from Leviticus. Okay, so we can't read the Bible like a textbook, a cookbook, a coffee table book. A lot of the times we read it like a magic book where we look for like some secret power. Like I said, we kind of start delving into some of that supernatural stuff. Like we start reading about the book of Acts. And if I read the book of Acts a lot, I'll kind of learn how to speak in tongues. Or if I read the prophets, I'll learn how to like prophesy and like read people's mail without them telling me a thing. And the reality is like that's not what scripture is for. It's not, it's not to get some kind of secret power. You know what I'm saying? And fifth and finally, the Bible is not a rule book. And this is the one I would say probably 95% of us struggle with in this room. A lot of the time we just read the Bible for behavior modification. Okay, so the Bible says to do this, so I'll do this. Or the Bible says don't do this, so I won't do this. And when we approach scripture that way, but the problem is is that behavior modification is not something limited to the Bible. In fact, uh, there's so many self-help books out there. Stephen Covey's telling you seven habits of highly successful, effective people. So if the Bible was just another self-help book, it wouldn't be that different or that distinct. But the Bible isn't for behavior modification. It's for transformation. And, And Stephen Covey, the seven habits, all that stuff, that can't transform you. It can help you. It can modify how you live. But ultimately, it's scripture that transforms us. See, there's a difference there. So you're asking me, okay, so if I can't read like a textbook, a cookbook, a coffee table book, a magic book, or a rule book, how do I read scripture? How do I read scripture? I want you to write this down. We were meant to read scripture relationally and narratively. Relationally and narratively. Ultimately, guys, scripture is not about just doing the right things or getting some kind of secret power. Scripture is telling a complete story. From Genesis to Revelation, we're reading about a God who created a perfect people, but these people sinned, fell short of the glory of God. The rest of the Old Testament is like the rising action. Well, that's where you see Moses and Noah, and you see these judges that we're reading about. All of that is not the climax of the story. They're not the heroes of the story. They're all part of the rising action to the climax of Jesus. 
And Jesus is the primary moment of this story. And then the rest of the New Testament is kind of what uh, the teachers teach us about, you know, in English class, about like the, that falling action. That, that's the New Testament. That's the Holy Spirit breathing on the church, right? That's where we find ourselves. We're in the falling action, all leading to the resolution of the story, which is when Christ comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom has no end. This, this is where we find ourselves in, in, right here and right now in the church. And this is the narrative we're a part of when we're reading scripture. So you're asking, okay, so like, so like what does that have to do with Judges 3? Well, once again, we have to come at the misconceptions of how we approach scripture. And now we have to approach this story relationally. Who is God showing himself to be? It's not just about what I need to do, my behavior. No, no. This is about how is God revealing himself to us. So I want to say that our God statement today is God is deliverer. Everyone say God is deliverer. God is deliverer. God is deliverer. Now, Pastor Tim, I think you had a really great, you had a great point last week where you kind of gave this cycle of unfaithfulness. We kind of see it, this cycle throughout like the whole story of scripture. We see it throughout the book of Judges and we also see it in all of the micro stories of the Judges. Can you remind us and refresh us, what was that cycle of unfaithfulness you talked about last week in the book of Judges? Absolutely. Can you go, oh, to that? Oh, my oh. goodness. Oh. I didn't hear um, any O's or amen. That must have been very average. Sorry, guys. Uh, <laughs> that was not average, Victor. That, that was very good. Thanks, man. I was hey, fishing. So if you were here last week, we kind of talked about how this book is very troublesome. And week two, you can see why. This is troublesome. We got swords going into fat men and him pooping himself when he dies. It's like, what, what is happening in the Old Testament? But in this story, this is, this is the second account of a judge. We have Othniel from 7 to 11, and then we have the author going right here into Ehud. And this is the cycle that we see. Can we go ahead and put up the cycle of unfaithfulness that we went through last week, Grady? These kind of four steps that we're going to see repeat themselves. Sin, slavery, sorrow, salvation. And so this is what we see take place in this story. It begins with, and again, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They were abiding in sin. And so then what takes place? God gives them over to their own destruction. And all of a sudden, instead of being the people of God, they enter into slaves, slaves to the inhabitants of the land. They begin to give themselves over to the gods of the land. And then what happens is it takes 18 years, 18 years being under the oppression of the Moabites for them to come to the bottom of the barrel and hit Sorrow. And what happens when we hit sorrow? We see Israel do the same thing. They cry out to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord. And what does God do? He raises up a judge. He raises up a judge and he delivers them. And this is the cycle, yes, that we're going to see over and over again throughout Judges. But yet again, going back to what we said last week, this is actually a cycle, sorry, that we see consistently in our own lives, right? This is us day by day returning to the things that we know God does not have for us, and yet we embrace them, we cherish them, we're given over to them, we reach the bottom of the bucket, and then by God's grace, we cry out to him, and he responds. So That's so good. So I actually want to zoom in a little bit on this cycle, because we see it in Judges 3, and we see it throughout Scripture. So I want, we're going to go through just a couple of questions. I want you to write down the question, then write down some of these responses. I believe they're really going to help us today. So we see at the end of this cycle is salvation, and we ultimately think like that's where it all ends. But as you said, the cycle repeats itself. We go back to sin. The people of Israel, they get saved by a judge. They get saved by God ultimately. 
they go back to sin. But we do the same thing in our lives. Like God will deliver us from something, but then we go right back. There's actually a verse, funny verse in Proverbs that says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to his sin. And it's just a cycle we see. So my, my first question for you, Pastor, is why do the people of God habitually sin? Why do we keep going back? Why isn't salvation like this one and done thing? Why don't we experience like immediate relief? Why do we habitually go back to sin? It's really, really good. Well, two ways that I, I kind of want to answer this. And I, I think maybe the first way to maybe rephrase it would, would be to say, why do we continue to struggle with sin? So here's the question. If you grew up in church, this is what I'm willing to bet. You grew up in church, you give your life to the Lord. And then it's like, at that point, it should be all sunshine and rainbows, Right? Like, you follow Jesus. You follow Jesus. So if you follow Jesus, that means you should no longer struggle. That means you should always love your siblings. You should never want to slap your sister in the face. But I found myself wanting to slap my sister in the face all the time, like growing up. Or, or you were wrestling with some form of addiction, and you gave your life to the Lord at maybe a retreat or maybe here on a Wednesday night, and yet you went home and the next day, you found yourself wrestling with the same desire to look at the same things, to do the same things, to say the same things. And so the question is, like, well, wait a minute. If Jesus actually is the way, the truth, and the life, why don't we just have that automatically when we give our lives to the Lord? And the first answer that we have to see here is, is we actually see Paul address this several times in the New Testament. Where he says, look, ju just because you give your life to Jesus doesn't mean everything is sunshine and rainbows. Colossians 3, can we go ahead and put this on the screen? The Apostle Paul says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So we have this moment where Paul's saying, look, you've actually been crucified with Christ. When God looks at you now, when you give your life to Jesus, he does not see your sin. He sees the blameless, spotless blood of the lamb over your life but the very next verse in verse 5 he says this put to death therefore what is earthly in you sexual immorality impurity passion evil desire and covetousness which is idolatry so he's saying look it is very possible and it actually is the case for every human being who gives their life to the lord that their life will then entail every day of their life them putting to death the deeds of the flesh for the rest of their life so this is what scholars kind of define the now but not yet. Now but not yet. We live in the now if we've been redeemed by Christ, and yet we continue to struggle. So we are embraced with the question, why do we continue to struggle? If God is all-powerful, why doesn't he just take away our struggle? And there are three kind of small reasons for one big reason that I, I want to say. I'm going to go through them quick. The first one is I think he continues to let us wrestle, struggle with sin, to show us and to remind us how hopeless we really are. And that kind of sounds weird. It's like, why would God do that? But there's, there's a piece of that that's important. If you believe ever that you yourself can be the answer to your own sin, when you continue to sin, you're going to continue to find the bottom of the barrel. Are you with me? So every time that we encounter our sin, it's God reminding us, you don't have the ability to take care of this yourself. You are not the one I have charged with fixing your life, in other words. The second reason I'm going to give you some kind of theological word here is, um, is dependence. Everyone say dependence. Dependence. Dependence, okay? So if we have to find in our hopelessness that we can't fix it, 
then the battle of sin every day before our face is to remind us that we are in need of a savior. Are you with me? So every time that you turn on your phone and that desire to look at something that you don't want to look at comes on, or every time you hop on social media and there's that just longing to be jealous for something that you don't have that's not yours, every time that happens, it's a reminder. You can't do this yourself. You need a savior. Are you with me? And the final reason I think that we, we continue to wrestle with sin, with sin is we get to see God's patience. So I want you to think of this. Think, I'm, I'm willing to bet for most people in this room, not all, you're born in a Christian home, you gave your life to the Lord when you were a little kid, maybe in junior high. And if you're seeing reality for what it is right now that you would know as an eighth grader, sophomore, junior, senior, freshman, whatever, that you actually still wrestle with a whole bunch of things today. In the very essence that you still wrestle today and yet, God chose to send his son anyway is a message to you that God is willing to be patient with you. He's willing to be patient with you. He's not expecting you to have life figured out today. Are you with me? This is a gracious reality to the Lord that, in fact, you don't have to put your life together. And if you're still wrestling with something tomorrow and you go back in the day after day after day, you're bringing it before the Lord, it's his way of saying to you, I'm holding on to you, even though you continue to fall short. Make sense? So I'd say that's why that's we, so we kind of continue to I love sin. that. And I feel like the, the idea of hopelessness, dependence, and the patience of God ultimately brings us back to a familiar verse we've heard, Romans 8, 28, right? That in all things, God is working for our good and for his glory. That's the ultimate reason why. And so I don't want to, I want to be clear. God isn't condoning sin for his glory. No, no, God is confronting sin and he's healing it in you for your good. It is for our greatest good that we are dependent on the patience and the grace of God. That's our greatest good, but it's ultimately for his glory because we can't save ourselves. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's move to oh. question. There we go. Thank you. Uh, to, to question oh. number two, and I need to hear a few more of those on this second question. This is a oh. good one. <laughs> oh. um, here's, here's my second question then. So sin leads us into this pattern of slavery, and slavery is, is something that the people of Israel are very familiar with, right? As soon as sin is introduced in the world, we see that the people of Israel go into captivity under Egypt. But then even after Egypt and out of the promised land, there's still a process with with slavery. And so slavery is this thing that all of a sudden now becomes a theme in, in Exodus, in Judges, and ultimately even in the New Testament, we see that same theme of slavery. In fact, even in Romans 6, Paul says, um, he, he mentions these phrases of being slaves to sin versus slaves to righteousness. And even Jesus says in John 8, 34, he says, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So can you, can you break down that phrase for us? What does it mean to be a slave to sin? Yeah, good question. Um, if you go into the Greek, the Greek word for sin is doulos. Everyone say doulos. Doulos. And then give me an oh. Oh. <laughs> doulos. Oh, yeah. Puberty. Oh, here we go. Okay. Um, meaning, the meaning of this word at its root is one being given over to another's will. One being given over to another's will. So in essence, what sin is, what being a slave to sin is, is one who is being given over to any other will than God himself. Are you with? I got you. 
You, are you with me? So you've been given over, serving, submitting to, living your life for any other will than God himself. That includes your own will. Are you with me? That means that to live for the glory of your own name is the idea of being a slave to sin. Why? Because your will is submitted to. It's been given over to the glory of your own name. So conversely then when Paul says, look, quit being a slave to sin, become slaves of righteousness, what he's saying is, hey, slaves of righteousness are people who have given their will over to God himself. In other words, God's will becomes your supreme purpose in life. Your supreme purpose in life. And then he gives us the best model for this in the person of Jesus, doesn't he? Right? So we see in John 6, 38, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. Everybody's like saying, hey, why don't you, why don't you just go ahead and, and, and be king? And they're, they're like, why don't you go ahead and continue to feed us? Why don't you go ahead and do this for yourself? And Jesus' response is, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. But then you t- he takes it a step further. And for those of you who know the story of Jesus, know that he has this moment. And tomorrow, we have the day before Good Friday that represents this moment, where this is the night Jesus is betrayed. He goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he gets down on his hands and knees, and he begins to pray and sweat blood. And he's saying, Lord, if there be any way for you to take this cup from me, would you do it? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so what we see from Jesus is, yeah, this reality, wait, wait, to be a slave to righteousness is to say exactly what we say in the Lord's Prayer. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done, where? On earth as it is in heaven. So to be a slave to sin is to say the exact opposite of that. Lord, on earth, my will be done. My will be done, or anybody else's will be done. A politician's will be done. A world leader's will be done. No, 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 no. To be a slave to righteousness is to say, no, 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 your will be done. Your kingdom come. This is what we're going for. His will becomes our supreme purpose. Bringing it back to Jesus and the submission is so key here. Because I think a lot of times we have like half the gospel. And what I mean by that is we love the idea in the gospel of salvation, right? Who doesn't love the idea that, that a savior came and secured our eternity with the father? We love salvation, but we hate submission, right? We love salvation. We love that, that Christ came and did this work on our behalf. But man, do we hate submission. I think about it like almost in a parental sense, like, I love the free food that my parents gave me. Like, I love that I had a free place to stay, like, growing up. But I hated, like, submitting sometimes. I hated when my parents had to say, like, hey, you can do this or you can't do this. I hated the submission part, but I liked the benefits. And we do that same thing with Jesus, don't we? We, th- we think the gospel is just salvation. No, no, no. Part of the gospel is saying, no, I have been saved, but now I submit myself to the Lord. Not my will, but your will be done. That is what it looks like to follow Jesus. I love that. So to kind of bring us back into the the story in Judges, up until this point we've talked about sin and slavery. And we see that in um, 3.14 when it talks about um, that the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. So there's 18 years of sin that caused slavery. Now I want us to kind of pivot here. 
where we go into the part of sorrow. The people of Israel, and even in Judges 3, uh, 15, it says that the people of God cried out to the Lord. The people are crying out. I love that, that God allowed Israel to get to such a point of desperation that all they could do was cry out. I don't know if you've ever been in that place. I know I've been in that place where everything else is falling apart. You're, you're at the end of yourself. And my question to you, Pastor Tim, would be, what do you do when you're at that place? What do you do when you don't know what to do? When you're stuck, when you're out of options, what do you do at that point of sorrow? Yeah, I've been at this place a thousand times. Admittedly, I could say I'm like in this place right now. I hate not having a good Achilles and being able to walk. And it's like, Lord, how long? How long does this have to last? And I, I, I think that we can have these moments. And I, I think the best way to answer this is there are kind of layers to slavery, aren't there? And we can see it with, we can see it with Israel here. And I, I'd break it down into three phases. Can we put the three phases up on the screen? Um, one, two, three, ready, great, there it is. Okay, first layer to slavery is like that honeymoon phase, right? When Mariah and I got married and it was like, we were 18 and 20 years old and it was like, man, this woman could do no wrong. And we got back from the honeymoon and I'm like, wow, this woman does a lot of things wrong, you know? But there's that, there's that moment where it's like, I didn't have that experience. You didn't have that Just experience. kidding. <laughs> Preem's not here tonight to hear that. We'll, we'll let her know. Listen to the podcast. No, but so, so we have this moment, right, where it's like sin. There's something in our life that just simply tastes so good. Simply tastes so good. And, and we just simply want to embrace it. We want to do it. And this can come in, in, in a thousand different forms. It can come into a moment where somebody does something that makes you so livid, so angry, and you have 18,000 things to say that would just demoralize their life. And instead of using self-control to keep your mouth shut, you just let them have it. Like you just, you just rip into them. And it feels really, really good in the moment. Those are, there's like, there's this honeymoon phase with slavery where it's like, man, like, it just, it tastes so good, so we just embrace it and we do it. And then there's the second phase that we walk in, which is the disillusion phase, that I'd say. And this is what we see for Israel being 18 years. So we have Israel who goes, you know what, they decided that what God did for them wasn't good enough. So they decided to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, the honeymoon phase, and they embraced the gods of the inhabitants of the land. Right? And then they have 18 years, 18 years that it takes them to realize this actually isn't that good. And for us, I think this is kind of, we get in the disillusion phase where we go, you know what, the sin tastes good. It didn't taste as good as it did in the honeymoon phase. So what do we do? We reach for more. We reach for more and more and more and more. And so all of a sudden, it's like, you can kind of see this where it's like, hey, a relationship doesn't satisfy you the way that it used to, so you need more of them. Or you need the relationship to go in a different direction than it needs to go, right? Or you switch people. All my high schoolers in the room, pay attention. You switch people. And it's like, no. And so we end up, we end up just start grasping for straws, trying to find something to keep the tank going. But then a certain point comes with our sin, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, that I'd call the brokenness phase, where you come to the bottom of the barrel, and you realize that whatever it is that you're searching for to satisfy your soul isn't going to satisfy your soul and you're empty. And this is the point where we hear Israel every time throughout Judges. 
They get to this place, and what do they do? They cry out to the Lord. And I want you to take notice to something here. They cry out to the Lord and then can't do anything else. They can't do anything else. We don't see Israel say, you know what, let's cry out to the Lord and let's try to rally an army to take out this King Eglon. No, they are completely powerless at the bottom of the barrel and they, they just cry out. And so we see this phrase all throughout scripture, wait on the Lord. And this is what we see Israel have to do here and this is what we have to do. When we come to the place where we don't know what to do, the only answer is to cry out and to wait. Wait, wait, wait. And why? Because salvation comes from who? The Lord. Not from our own efforts, not from our own strength, not from our own perspective, from the Lord. That's so good. And that's a hard one, though, because we hate waiting, right? We're in a culture that hates waiting. We have a thousand drive throughs because we hate waiting. We have apps to order ahead so that when I get there, it's just there and it's ready for me. We hate waiting. So I, wanna, I want you guys to write down three quick things, though, about waiting. It's a theme we see in Scripture, but maybe the question is, what does waiting mean? Does that mean like I lock myself in my room and wait for God to do something? Like there's a couple like, kind of guidelines I'd love to give to you for I think some of you who are in that season where, yeah, maybe I, there's been this habitual sin you find yourself in. You find like you're a slave to it. You're at that point of sorrow. What do I do? What do I do? I, I kind of want to give you some just some practical things to help you in this season of waiting you might find yourself in. The first thing is Wait slowly and patiently. Wait slowly and patiently. This is the hardest part because we want to fix it. We want to go to the next thing. That's our culture, right? That's, that's where we are as a generation. We want the next thing quickly. But the Lord just loves taking his time because he's real thorough. And he loves to restore completely. So wait slowly and patiently. Secondly, wait quietly. Wait quietly. When you reach that point of sorrow, a lot of the times it's easy um, to kind of just do a lot of asking and a lot of, a lot of just talking. But the Lord usually wants to speak in times of waiting. But we have a hard time slowing down and being still and quiet before him. So as you're waiting in this season of sorrow, learn how to listen for the voice of the, learn, of, of the Lord. Waiting well requires the voice of the learn. <laughs> voice of the learn. So wait well by, by waiting slowly and patiently, quietly, and thirdly, Learn how to wait communally, communally. Here's what I mean by that. It's the people of God who are in this waiting. And a lot of times when we find ourselves struggling with something, we're waiting on the Lord. That's not a, an excuse for us to isolate ourselves. In fact, that's actually an invitation to find the trusted brothers and sisters in the faith, to find a pastor, to find a mentor. If your parents are a safe place, to go to your parents to process, hey, like this is what I feel like is going on. This is what I'm struggling with. This is what I'm wrestling with. I'm waiting for the Lord to help me. Do it communally. Don't try to like wait on the Lord by yourself, but allow people, trusted people, into that process. You with me? You with me? Okay, okay, I was making sure. Okay, okay. All right, last, last question. Well, second to last question, really, is we, to get back into this story of Judges. So the people of God have sinned. They fall into slavery. They cry out. And then ultimately in Judges 3, 15, it talks about then the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. And, and this time it's in the form of a judge, um, we see God respond. We see God respond to the waiting and the crying out of his people. So my question is, how does God's response to deliver inform God's character? How, how, does, it, how does that work? 
This is a good question. I think this question always provokes the also infamous theological question that many of us will ask. Why does it seem like God's different in the Old Testament versus the New Testament? Like, why aren't we seeing stories of fat men being stabbed by swords and pooping themselves in the New Testament? But we see it in the Old Testament. And, and this is commonly like what I'll hear when I sit with somebody who's wrestling with this. So like, it always feels like God's so full of wrath in the Old Testament, and he's just full of grace in the New Testament. And what I want to challenge that question with is this. I think any person could say that in the New Testament, uh, about that in the New Testament, except one person, and his name's Jesus Christ. So we have, we have the inhabitants of the land. We even have this king of Eglon who's an evil king. And in fact, every person in the Old Testament is just of whatever response or whatever life they're given from the Lord. God is always just in what he does. He's always just in what he gives, period. That doesn't even need an explanation. But yet we get to this place where it's like, well, why does it seem like he's so harsh? And yet with, in the New Testament, it's like he's offering you grace and mercy and sunshines and rainbows and whiskers on kittens, those sorts of things. And, and I want to ask you, do you think that's what was going through Jesus' mind on the cross? I want you to think about that. Like, that it would actually be Jesus' response where he's like, in the New Testament, God had no wrath. He was just gracious. When in fact, the greatest pour out of God's wrath is in the New Testament on a cross 2,000 years ago. And so I think this is important to ask because we're going to say, okay, like what kind of deliverer or how does God's character or his nature like inform his character, and I, I think it's important for us to realize that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you have prophecies. In the New Testament, you have those prophecies fulfilled. In the Old Testament, you center on a people, Israel. In the New Testament, you center on a person, Jesus. But in both cases, for the church, for Israel, for humanity, for salvation to take place, God has to step in. He steps in. And so this provokes maybe this kind of question, that is, what kind of deliverer do we see God to be? What kind of deliverer do we see God to be? And I think there are kind of three answers for this in Judges. The first is that we see that he's a caring deliverer. He's a caring deliverer. The people of God, Israel, cried out, and what did God do? He had every justified right to turn his back and said, I already gave you a chance. But what does he do? He responds and he raises up a judge. The second type of deliverer that I think we see him to be is a gracious deliverer. Can you hear me? The story of Israel is not a Disney story. It's not a story of a damsel in distress. You know what I mean? Like this is not Rapunzel being locked in a tower against her will with the Moabites, and she innocently needs a savior. No, no, no. This is a rebellious, evil people who have chosen to walk away from their God. The God who split the Red Sea for them. The God who brought them out of slavery. And what kind of response do they get from this God when they cry out? It's a gracious response. He continues to come back over, over, and over again. And then finally, I, I think you can say that God is a victorious deliverer. 
at the end of the day, the king of Eglon, or Eglon was dead on his balcony with his feces right next to him, right? But more importantly, as you continue to read the story, Israel is liberated from the Moabites. And they have a period, they have a time, they have a season where they're living in freedom, worshiping the Lord, doing it right. But this begs a question. Well, then what kind of deliverer do we see God be today? If God is a caring deliverer, a gracious deliverer, a victorious deliverer in the Old Testament, how did it change in the New Testament? I want you to hear me. It didn't. Why? Because I could tell you that Jesus is a caring deliverer. How do we know this? 2,000 years ago, the night that he was betrayed, he got down on his hands and knees, he took his garments off, and he began to wash feet. And he washed the feet of all 12 disciples. You know what that means? Him knowing the disciple that was going to betray him and hand him over to Pontius Pilate, he got down on his hands and knees, and he washed his feet. A caring deliverer. He's a gracious deliverer. I need you to hear me, brothers and sisters. We are not a damsel in distress. You, me, the world today is not an innocent people that's just waiting for a God to step in. We're a rebellious people that are in need of a savior. But Jesus is also a victorious deliverer. And you know how I know? Because in five days, we're going to celebrate that the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. It's empty. That death has lost its sting. And that now as the church, as the people of God today, we do not need to be afraid of God the Father. But we know that we have a mediator. And in fact, we know that we have someone who is sitting at the right hand of God right now interceding on our behalf, knowing that when God looks at us, his followers, those who believe in him, he cannot see them outside of the person of Jesus Christ. Can you stand with us this evening? I want to, I, I think the only way to kind of end is, is we're in Holy Week is to kind of take a moment. We've, we've said this prayer a hundred times before here at Student Ministries, and if it's your first time uh, reading this prayer, I want to give you just some context. That this prayer and us, us reading this prayer, the, the prayer of confession, it's an age-old prayer that the church has been reciting for centuries, speaks to the first question that Victor asks. Why is it that we habitually sin and that we just continue to wrestle with sin which then can answer the question, why do we continually say this prayer, most merciful God? I confess that I've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what I've done and by what I have left undone. Why do we do that? Because we remember in this week, Passion Week, where we're remembering the death, the life, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that every day, Brothers and sisters, we're in need of a deliverer. Every day, you and I are in a place 
where we are constantly looking for, God, for, for something to satisfy our lives outside of God. And we say this as a way to say, Lord, help, help remind me. In the same way that Israel forgot over and over and over, I know I'm a forgetful person. And so help me remember. And so I want you to, if, if you can and if you're willing to, to say this prayer, you can recite this prayer. Drew, can you bring down the lights if that's okay? I just want you to take a moment to realize, hey, hey, hear me. God is a deliverer. And the person of Jesus came to die on the cross 2,000 years ago so that you would know he is a caring, gracious, and victorious deliverer for you. So can we say these words together? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us, forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. As we take a couple minutes and as we worship, can you just meditate on the fact that Jesus came, that he died, that he rose again for the purpose of delivering you. Thanks again for listening to this message from New Life Student Ministries. If you want to keep up with what's happening with us, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at NL Student Ministries.